Hi, everybody. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to Luke chapter 1. You know, every year in the month of December, uh, we spend time here, and the churches all around the country and around the world do the same thing. Uh, we spend a few weeks and we look at the Christmas account yet again. Same story every single year. It doesn't change from year to year. So we always look at it from different angles and different perspectives. And sometimes we go to the Old Testament to, to talk about how it talks about Christmas. And this year, we've spent some time looking at some of the different figures throughout the Christmas account, those that you would be familiar with from a nativity set. And when you begin to, to look at the Christmas story through the lens of these people's actual lives, the story explodes with richness and depth and meaning. Nowhere, I think, is that better seen than with Mary. One of the foremost figures of the Christmas account, and rightly so, but when you take a character like this and you dust them off from the shelf and you begin to look into the circumstances that were happening at this Christmas account, all of a sudden, things change with the Christmas story. Luke begins his gospel account this way, chapter one, verse three. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke diligently has studied and researched all the, the, the details of Jesus' life and his ministry, and what he records for us is eyewitness testimony to what actually went down with Jesus and those around him. What he lays out for us in Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two in the Christmas stories is stuff that only Mary could know. So what he's done is 35, 40 years after these events have occurred, Luke sits down with Mary herself and interviews her. Tell me everything that happened. Tell me about the angel. What did he say? How did it feel when the shepherds came to visit, when the wise men came a couple of years later? Walk me through how you felt and what you did in those moments. And we get to listen in on their conversation because Luke recorded it for us in his gospel account. Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I think it's far too easy to get so used to Christmas stories that we miss their significance. And it's easy to do that certainly with the the account of Mary. We're so familiar. In fact, some people are so familiar with the account of Mary and, and what happens with her that some faith groups turn her into something that she's not and they make her more than she should be. But it's too easy to dismiss what happens here. But let's not miss the significance of what has just happened to this little girl. She labels herself as virgin. That word has two connotations to it. First, she is a young maiden, likely between the ages of 12 and 14 years old. Secondly, it's the connotation that we're familiar with. She hasn't had any sexual activity with anyone, including Joseph, her fiance. She lives in Nazareth, a little town in the region of Galilee of about 1,500 people. Small town life can be pretty challenging when everybody knows your business. The culture she lives in is chauvinistic. A woman has to do anything and everything that her husband tells her to do without question. Women were subservient to men. Women were looked down upon in their culture. Women, like the the shepherds also in the Christmas story, were considered so low in their culture Women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. They weren't considered to be trustworthy enough. So to their culture, the only important thing that they ever did was have babies. Mary lives in a shame-based culture. A shame-based culture is one that focuses in on everybody's sin and mistakes. They're really a fun group of people at a party. If you've done something wrong, if you haven't done something that was right that you should have done, everybody focuses in on that. And if you're guilty in whatever way society deems you guilty, you will pay the price. So with all of that background in mind, she's a young teenager. She's a small town girl. She lives in a society that doesn't value her that's focused on shame. Think of the significance of what the angel has just said to her. You are going to have a baby. What God has asked her to do is going to be incredibly challenging. Let's look at some aspects of Mary's life that brings a statue like this to life. First, Let's talk about what we could call the degree of her difficulties. There's certainly going to be some social difficulty. We have this idea that everybody in Mary's town and family and friends were okay with the fact that she was pregnant because the Bible doesn't record anybody yelling or arguing with her. But in her context, they're not happy that this has happened. You know, two guys sitting on a street corner, Mary walks by, the conversation is not, oh, hey, did you hear she's pregnant? Oh, that's great, she's got the pregnant girl glow. That's not their conversation. 
Their conversation is far more negative than that. Imagine if a teenage girl walks into our church tonight and says, I'm pregnant, but have no fear. I'm a virgin. God did it. How's that going to go for you? You're not going to believe her. They're not going to believe her. The penalty for adultery, which is the only logical conclusion for what she's done, is stoning her to death in the streets. That's the conversation on the street corner. There's certainly physical difficulty. One of the most fascinating aspects of pregnancy from my ununderstanding male perspective is the physical transformation that a woman's body goes to goes through over the course of 40 weeks. God has hardwired your body to be like Optimus Prime and change around and transform to accommodate this little baby. Ladies, you understand the pain, the discomfort, the, the challenges of childbirth. Imagine doing that at 13. There's family difficulty. I mean, there's no doubt that people in her family are gonna shun her for this. They're not going to believe her story. Even Joseph, her fiance, according to the Gospel of Matthew, plans to divorce her for her story. She had to have known in a shame-based culture such as hers, that was gonna happen. Then there's what I would call the ultimate difficulty. Because after enduring all of this, surrounding the, the controversy, the chaos of the baby and the birth and all of this stuff, 33 years later, Mary will stand at the foot of a cross in Jerusalem. And she will watch that boy murdered at the hands of evil, wicked men. She knew the Old Testament scriptures. She knew what would happen to the Messiah when he came. He was known as the suffering servant. So with all of that hovering in the background, secondly, look at the sense of her surrender. Do you hear the power of her words in response to the angel? Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. Do you see how important her surrender to God's will is? Without Mary's surrender in this moment, we don't have the first Christmas as we know it. Without the first Christmas as we know it, there's no first Easter as we know it. Without the work of Jesus on the cross, without his resurrection from the dead, there is no hope for sinners like us. The Bible is so helpful to us in this regard because the Bible teaches us reality. It doesn't paint a picture that makes you feel good. It simply presents reality. We have sinned. God, the creator, God, the sustainer of the universe is holy and he's perfect. He's righteous. And then there's us. By nature and by choice, we are unholy, we are imperfect, we are unrighteous, and on our own, as the New Testament letter to the Ephesians describes, we are, quote, without hope and without God in the world. That's us. Our sin, 
our falling short of God's perfect standard, uh, missing his expectations, all that has separated us from him. The relationship with God is strained. It's been broken. And some of you feel that. You felt it for some time. You feel this distance from God that you can't quite explain. And maybe that's why you're here. Because in your heart of hearts, your hope is that you could come into a place like this on a night like tonight and you could feel close to God in a way that you haven't felt in a long time. I have good news for you. You can. The message of Christmas is that God has come near. There's a reason that tonight is known as O Holy Night. Because God didn't write you off. God didn't condemn you. God came to save you. And now because of Jesus' sinless life, because of his sacrificial death, you can be reconciled to the God who made you. You don't have to feel separated from him anymore. But none of that goes down unless Mary surrenders to God's plan for her in this moment. Sometimes the Lord asks us to do things that don't always make sense. He commands us to live in ways that are sometimes counterintuitive. And and we think we know better. We think our ideas make more sense, but they never do. It doesn't work out like we hoped. Remember, God is perfect. We're imperfect, so we don't get to argue with him. And whatever it is that he wants to do in your life, there is much at stake in your surrendering or in the lack thereof. What Mary does here is pretty fantastic. May it be to me, according to your word. I am the Lord's servant. I'll do whatever he asks. What she does is fantastic, but that does not make her worthy of worship. She is no more special than any of you who tonight would say yes to God to whatever it is that he's asking of you. That's all she did. So what good things would happen in your life if tonight and in the days to come, you simply said yes to God? Mary did, and it changed everything. And because of that, number three, see the richness of her rewards. Saying yes to God carried a price tag for Mary. There were challenges, there were difficulties, there were, there were risks Saying yes to God always involves a little bit of that. But there were also unimaginable rewards. Three days after they laid Jesus in the tomb, a group of women were headed to that tomb to prepare Jesus' body for final burial. And as they were going, they were having this conversation among themselves, worried about who was going to roll the stone away from the front of the tomb because several grown men couldn't move that. So here's just a, a few women who knew they wouldn't be able to move that stone, so they don't know what they're going to do. And they get there only to discover that someone's already done it. It's already been rolled away, and an angel from heaven is sitting there. And he says to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen, just as he said he would. Mary was in that group of women. 
She was the first one to hear the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. The last reference we have to Mary in the Bible is in the book of Acts. Luke writes two volumes. He writes the Gospel of Luke, and then he writes the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we are told that Mary is there at the beginning of the church. She's in that upper room on that day with 120 believers gathered together. And she was there when the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles of Pentecost and miracles broke out. She was there when 3,000 people repented of their sin and were baptized into Christ all in response to a sermon about her son. Unimaginable rewards. On November the 25th, 2001, a man named Jonathan Michael Spann, a CIA agent, was killed during a prison uprising in Afghanistan. He was the first American to be killed in combat during the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And in the days following his tragic death, his father was interviewed on the Today Show. And his father welled up in pride as he quoted his son, as his son and he were having a conversation of why he would leave the military and go into the very dangerous work with the CIA. He quoted his son as saying this, somebody has to do what no one else will do. Mary's reward was that she knew that her son, God's son, had done. He had done not what no one else would do. He had done what no one else could do. He's the only one who could stand in your place before God. He alone is the one who can go to the cross. He alone is the one who can forgive your sin. He alone is the one who can offer to you tonight the thrill of hope. We first meet Mary when she hears that she's gonna have a baby. And oh, what a day it was for her. We meet her again when everything goes down at the birth and Christmas night, we can't join Mary there. 2,000 years separate us from that night. We can't join Mary at the empty tomb either. We can't join Mary in that upper room in Acts 1 on the day of Pentecost. We can't go there. But we can enter into the experience that Mary had. We can join her tonight. We can join her in trusting in her son for the salvation of her sins. We can join her tonight in worshiping her son because he is the one who came to save. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather. What a special night this is.
And for those who know Jesus and love Jesus and worship Jesus tonight, holds a special place in their heart, and rightly so, because this proves that you came near. You came close. You came to be with us. And for those who do not know Jesus tonight, who don't love Jesus, who haven't worshiped Jesus, tonight can be a very special night for them. As they realize, maybe for the very first time, that when they stand before you, their creator, they're separate from you. Their sin has separated them, but you love them, and that love was proven as Jesus came to the earth to save. So may, may tonight be the night that in their heart they turn to you and they ask Jesus to save because he delights in saving sinners like us. So for the next few moments as we sit and listen to a song, I pray that you would use the truth of its words to speak to us. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.